You're listening to DA Rockstar's podcast, a podcast for dental assistants. I'm your host, Rhonda Holman. I've been a dental assistant for 20 years and I've learned a thing or two along the way. And here's what I've learned. We have to band together to share our pearls so that we can all grow and achieve rockstar status. Alright rock stars, if I haven't gotten your attention previously about Zen Supplies, let's try a different accent. How it works. Zen Supplies, their web-based platform manages inventory and ordering of your dental supplies. They combine the advantage of having everything in one place and having a single point of reference for inventory control, ordering and budgeting. How it works. 1. Create an account and link your suppliers. 2. Review your custom inventory list. 3. Process orders with confidence. 4. Track and verify orders as the shipments arrive. 5. Control 4% of supplies budget with personalized attention. Are you ready for Zen Supplies? Visit www.zensupplies.com to find out more. Well, hey guys, welcome back to DA Rockstars. Of course, we had to bring Tina Clark back on because who does not love talking about dental anesthetic? <laughs> I know I do, and I know Tina does. I Tina, love what, it. What, what's going on? How have you been? Oh, I've been doing good. Thank you so much. I am really excited to be back and get to talk more about anesthesia. <laughs> Can't help I have to say that, it with a sing-songy uh, voice too. Right. I love it. I, I was thinking of like a tune. I could do a beatbox and then you could do the lyrics. Well, okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe we should rehearse that before we record. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good call. Good call. Okay. So there are three things that we didn't get to cover last time we talked about dental anesthetic. And I really think there's a lot of dental assistants that could benefit from hearing some of these topics and, and maybe understanding them a little bit more. So the first thing I really wanted to talk about was the temperature of dental anesthetics. Does it make a difference? And what are the benefits? Right. So, um, you know, this is a long-term topic. And I, when I was going through and looking up some of the research on it, um, it's pretty much split 50-50. Um, most of the time, the studies have been done with kiddos with the itty bitties. And they say that, you know, if the temperature of the anesthetic is close to body temperature, then the perception of pain goes down and it's all about geared towards patient comfort. Not so much, uh, from what I found in all the research, it doesn't really impact the, uh, onset of the anesthetic, you know, making the anesthetic work faster. It's more about patient comfort, which, you know, really, I think that's probably one of our biggest concerns, right? Is patient comfort and, um, making sure that they are not, uh, clenching and grinding and white knuckling it through the entire <laughs> anesthetic process. So yeah, heating it up, it can make a difference. Um, and then you have to think about how warm is too warm, right? Cause those, uh, anesthetic warmers, you know, we've seen them, like they have the little light bulb right there. Those can get pretty hot and almost be warmer than body temperature, which would then counteract the pain relieving aspect of it. So oftentimes I would say, you know, just let the anesthetic be in your hand and warm it up that way. You know, the, uh, uh, think of like the karate kid, Mr. Miyagi, right? 
Remember that movie where he takes, he claps his hands together and does that rub before right. he puts his shoulder, hands on Danielson's shoulder or knee. I can't remember which body part, right? That's, that's kind of what I think about when um, maybe a, an effective way of warming the anesthetic that won't make it too hot um, or, or damage the integrity of it. So have you heard of people like wanting to just stick it in a, like a cup of warm water? Right. So we, we've done the cup of warm water. Um, I've also worked with a doc that had me place it on the overhead light. Oh, interesting. Have, so yeah, like, um, I guess right above the cover. So mm -hmm. the light was already on the patient through the topical placement. And then, you know, maybe the anesthetic carpule was up there two to three minutes and it was warmer. Um, and then, you know, it's funny because I was remember there's this girl I used to work with. And when we would go to like fancy dinners, they'd have like these little square cubes of butter on the table that were wrapped in foil. And they were always really hard and she would sit on them. <laughs> and then the butter would melt right away, you know, not melt, like not get on her pants, but it was, it would, the whole concept of like what you're saying, like holding it in your hand, is like just bringing it to body temperature. Right. Well, I have to say, I, I, I kind of cringed a little bit when you said that you would put it on the back of the dental light. I just, you know, I know that we do a really great job with our infection control, but how often are you really wiping down the nooks and crannies behind that light? Oh yeah. It was probably super dirty. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and yeah. even if you grabbed it with cotton forceps, like there's still no way of preventing cross-contamination with that kind of situation, which is why I'm glad I really don't work with that dentist anymore. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and, and same thing, like when you're putting it in water, you have the potential of, uh, of reducing the integrity of that anesthetic cartridge. Right. Because of the seal. Right. Because okay. of the seal. Yeah. Cool. So I say, I say, you know, if you're going to do it, just use your hands, do the, you know, rub it in your hands, kind of warming method. Um, if you're, you know, going through and doing some other stuff, you know, maybe just palm it in your hand for a little bit. Um, but honestly, the research shows that it, it's helps slightly, but maybe not significantly enough. Okay, cool. You got, you got that guys. Okay. Here's question number two. Are you ready? I'm ready. Computer assisted anesthetic delivery. Okay. So I worked for a doctor who used the wand W A N D. I don't know what it stood for. But yeah, I don't know what it stands for either. It would so you put the carpule in the machine and then it goes through this tube and it goes to the needle at the end and it was a timed injection and I guess pressurized. I don't, I don't know. Can you tell us more about that? Right. So the reason why they are that why they exist and why they are helpful is because you get a steady anesthetic flow. So you have, you know, very controlled delivery amount and it's the right kind of pressure. So, you know, with the traditional anesthetic carpule uh, and syringe, you know, you, it, you're putting your thumb into the thumb ring and then you're using your own manual pressure and pressing down. And, you know, I kind of equate this to like a massage where you can, you know, massage your own hand or your forearms, right? Cause we are tired and our arms get tired. And so sometimes we just massage our own hands and our, our forearms, like we can apply different pressure all the time. It's never going to be consistent. So with the computer aided delivery systems, you are always getting consistent pressure and flow rate. Now, what that means for our patient is that it could be less 
painful process for the injection, especially on the palatal injection, because that is really tight tissue and it allows that anesthetic to flow without the, the pressure from the syringe itself being forcing that anesthetic in there. Okay. Okay. And is this cost effective? Like, let's say your doc um, is like an ex football player for some college team, right? And they have these giant hands that are super muscular and they don't know slow. Um, they physically, mechanically don't know slow. Um, what, I mean, is it, do you think that the, the cost benefit thing is a, a, like, if I was a dental assistant going to my dentist and saying, Hey doc, um, I noticed a lot of our patients are experiencing discomfort with these injections, and I know we've done our best. Is there a chance that we can utilize technology to experience a, a better delivery? Like, do you think it's it's something that a dental assistant could talk to the doc about? Well, you know, Rhonda, I think that one of the best things that anybody in the dental team can do is to have those open discussions and the fact that, um, you know, that topic is even being brought up, I think is great. The return on investment, the ROI on that, I think honestly, the way that, you know, we're talking about it really depends then on the clinician, because if you have, you know, Mr. You know, <laughs> college football player with, you know, <laughs> this vice grip, uh, and who can't necessarily slow it down, it could be a safety issue for their patients. So it could be a really good return on investment for them because their, you know, their patients are having a safe, effective dose and it's staying consistent and they're a lot more comfortable. However, maybe you don't work with somebody like that. The return on investment may not be there. So you really have to kind of look at the clinician itself. Now the, there was some research done on Oh, hopefully you guys just didn't hear my dog sneeze in the background, <laughs> uh, but there was some research done where, uh, some patients had the computer aided delivery system given to them and had to make a decision. Would they pay extra to have anesthetic delivered to them that way versus the traditional way? And the, I think it was like something like 58% said that they would actually pay more to have that type of delivery system. So it could potentially be a, you know, cost benefit for the entire practice. Right. Cause I mean, you have to think about, so if you guys can't vision what this machine looks like, there's always this disposable tube and specialized needle that go with the machine. And I don't know if they're like the same cost as like a cannula, but I mean that it is, it, it adds to that procedure fee for sure. So I could definitely see generating that um, expenditure back into the practice and especially supply and demand. You know, I even, I know it's a little off topic, but a couple of years ago, I made like a dental menu and I would give it to my patients when I seated them. So it was like, would you like nitrous oxide? Would you like a weighted blanket? I have six pounds and 10 pounds. Would you like headphones? I have ones that go over your head. I have AirPods or ear pods or whatever you call them. Would you like to listen to Pandora or watch Netflix? Like I had this little menu and they had a little dry erase pencil <laughs> and they got to pick what they wanted to do. Like, and I could totally see that being an option. That way you don't use the products if they're, you know, you won't be compensated for it, I guess. Right. Where I'm going to. <laughs> and can I say that next time I have a dental procedure, will you please be my dental assistant working with me? Because that sounds amazing. 
I'm like, okay, I will take the first class treatment for sure. Well, I'm telling you, Tina. So like, and this is what I try to tell all the dental assistants that listen to the show. You guys have got to understand that a lot of your existing patients are going to generate more revenue for your practice. There are things like I've been in places where they self-referred out to another office to get Invisalign. I'm like, dude, we do Invisalign. Like, why didn't you know that? Like they, and you, sometimes you just have to put it in black and white on a piece of paper, laminate it and throw a dry erase marker on it. <laughs> well, I love it. I love it. I, I want, I want that in my everyday life. So, you know, when you were talking about your menu and having all of the, the tubing, that's what you're talking about. You were talking about the tubing and, and the cannulas. The other thing to have to, you have to think about is, do you have the counter space, the operatory space for this? And I know some operatories don't necessarily, you know, have a lot of counter space room or cabinet space. So you have to also look at that as well. That's actually a really great point. Yeah. Yeah. Understanding like the ergonomics of your operatory for sure. Holy cow. Okay. I got another one. You ready? Let's do and it. I think we kind of touched on a situation that I experienced, um, the last time we podcasted about this, but what do you do if a patient isn't getting numb? When does your doctor know it's time to call it quits after how many milliliters? Like, how does that work? <laughs> and, and what are some of the common causes why a patient wouldn't get numb? All right. Well, I'm going to start with some of the common causes and then we'll talk about some strategies. Uh, common causes. The number one is anatomical variations. Like, especially when we're talking about the IA, the inferior alveolar, the mandibular block, I think that's the one that gets people the most trouble. Um, a lot of times it could be that there's crossover innervation. There's this pesky little nerve called the mylohyoid nerve that likes to give some accessory uh, innervation, especially to that mandibular first molar. Uh, and so that could be it. You could have a patient that has a bifid inferior alveolar nerve. So like it's gone ahead and split into two, uh, which is a, a rarity, but it is possible. Uh, and your patient could just have a completely different nerve pathway as well. You know, the only way that we can really tell that for sure. Um, well, there's two ways now it used to be the old fashioned way would be, we would have to just dissect our patient open and take a look at their nerves. And it's kind of hard to, you know, find somebody who's willing <laughs> yeah. to do that. <laughs> Here, come be my guinea pig. Bring out exactly. the 15 blade. <laughs> But now, you know, that with Combeam technologies, we can see some of that stuff a little bit clearer. And so if you have, if your practice has that, that might be something to take a look into. Maybe if, especially if a patient reports, uh, that as a long time thing that they have a hard time getting them, that could be a, a potential benefit for that. So you have your anatomical variations. The other thing it could be, would be the clinician themselves. You know, I know that everybody is just doing the very best that they can, but sometimes bad habits happen and a clinician could be doing an injection in the completely wrong space at the wrong, with the wrong type of needle, um, having all of the wrong, it's all just wrong. And so sometimes that can happen, which then, you know, the clinician should probably go through and take a look at their technique and reevaluate the anatomy and the neural pathways that are in existence and try to refresh on the extra oral landmarks that are available as well. And I have heard stories of dental assistants 
who have, and you've probably experienced this where you've watched one clinician do certain injections and you can see that how uh, successful they are. And then you go to a different clinician who struggles and you're like, well, you're not even in the same place as the other person was. Oh yeah. They're pulling the needle in and out and in and out and in and out. I'm like, stop it. You're just scraping along the mandible. <laughs> Are we trying to quilt our patient? Numb? <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. So I would say that there's that. The other thing would be, you know, your anesthetic type. If your patient is, uh, has a a high infection, like if you have a really, really hot tooth, it's going to be a, a lot more challenging to get them numb because of the acid uh, and pH balance in the patient's mouth. So if that's coming, if that's happening, um, there's a couple of approaches that can be taken. Buffering agents are great because that actually helps uh, bring the anesthetic and the body into a more uh, happy, uniform, balanced uh, pH. So you have that. You could also do kind of a one-two punch of a plain anesthetic followed up with an anesthetic with a vasoconstrictor. That can also help with uh, getting the anesthetic to really hold on to things. Okay. So how do you do the base? Like, do you, is that something that the doctor does? I mean, is like the, bu the buffering, I've, the buffering. Yes. Cause I've seen, I've seen a couple of videos where doctors are talking about like ex they, ex they excrete some of the whatever anesthetic and then they put something else in it and like they mix it all in one compule. Is that a thing? I don't know. Yeah, no, it is. There's actually a, um, a company and of course, it just slipped my brain. Don't you love that? So there's a company that um, has a whole delivery system where you you put the anesthetic carpule, like your 2% lidocaine with your one to 100,000 epi, right? We'll just use that as your example. You put it into this um, kind of a, a tube looking delivery system and you put it in and you press this little button. And what will end up happening is a little bit of that anesthetic will be removed from the cartridge, from the anesthetic cartridge. And then a sodium bicarbonate solution will be take its place. So that will help bring that pH balance right back up. Um, then from there, it can be loaded into your traditional syringe and administered to the patient. Okay. Okay. I, I, yeah, I get it now. That's probably a very niche market. I can't imagine a lot of doctors do that now. Do they like, um, well, they can, because it actually is not too expensive. And I really am. I'm, I'm just trying to not open my internet browser right now to look it up because I was just looking at it the other day and don't you hate it when that happens? Um, so it is fairly, I think it's fairly cost effective and it's something that actually the dental assistant can do chair side while waiting for the topical anesthetic to take place. And it's something that you really have to do immediately. It's one of those things you do it maybe about 10, 15 minutes before the procedure. So while topical is being placed, that's a perfect time to do it. And then uh, just go ahead and administer that anesthetic. So uh, let me understand, is this a time sensitive thing? Why wouldn't they just make anesthetics with buffers in them already? Right, because the epinephrine is, and, and neo, norepinephrine, but basically we use epinephrine, that is placed into the anesthetic cartridge as an acid salt. Now, when we put that in there, it has a very, very short shelf life. And so we have to put preservatives in there. 
That's why when we ever ask a patient a question about, are you, you know, what are your allergies? Are you allergic to food preservatives? Uh, those are the same types of preservatives that are put into the anesthetics. And so we have this high acid salts for the epinephrine. We have to put this buffer in. So that way the anesthetic has a stable shelf life. You know, we have to put those, you know, that, um, I just lost the word, Rhonda. I am so sorry. <laughs> You're fine. Dental assistants. The preservative. Exactly. You have to put the preservative, preservative in there. Yeah. So you have to put the preservative in there and then that keeps that stable shelf life. So if we didn't have that, you know, you would, you wouldn't be able to use your anesthetic by the time it got to you. So you have to put that buffering system in within and use it within that day or else the anesthetic will be useless. Gotcha. So, um, takeaway point is if you guys do implement this buffering type protocol, um, don't prepare in advance, do it while they've got topical on. Cause you would hate to waste that stuff. Yes. You don't want to waste it. I don't know. Okay. Ooh, these, I got two side questions. You ready? Ready. Okay. So how much is a typical carpool of anesthetic? Like, have you ever priced it out? Ooh, the actual cost. Yeah. No. I wonder, cause like some people, I know some offices that are like super micro, um, focused and they'll talk about the exact cost of per procedure, whether it's, you know, with barriers and cotton products. I wonder, Hmm. You know, the last time I looked at that was for the school and it was all based off of school pricing. So, and that was like two or three years ago. And I don't even remember what those numbers were, but I, I would say it's, that's, that's kind of interesting. And, you know, with the cost of things going up now, I wonder how much it has changed. Yeah. If you guys are listening to this, um, throw it on Instagram or Facebook. <laughs> I feel like, uh, I did some research and this is cause Julie Varney did that and she did a pricing on gloves and it was like crazy, ridiculous post COVID, like how much a single glove was. And I don't remember the number, but interesting nonetheless. And then I got another one. You ready? Let's do it. If a cartridge of lidocaine says it expires on X date, is it really expired or is it one of those best buy things? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you this. I, according to the manufacturers, yes, it's really expired. With that being said, I have heard and seen a lot of people use expired anesthetic in the like, like overseas volunteerism type of a thing. And the patients have gotten up. Yeah. So, um, so I'll just leave it at that. Right. So we know we're not allowed to use it, but I just wanted to know because we had a Guatemala closet and all of our expired products went to Guatemala for our, our company. So I, yeah. And no one ever said they didn't work. So I was like, Ooh, especially if they're temper controlled and you know, like I, ugh, I always thought about that. I'm like, is it a best buy date or is it really expired? Cause I know, you know, what mod modern commercialism did for a lot of things, but no matter what, we never put expired anything in a patient's mouth because that will come back to bite you or what come back to bite you. <laughs> it will come back to bite you. And the other thing is again, with the expiration date, especially if it has a vasoconstrictor in there, generally that is the expiration of when that preservative for the vasoconstrictor, um, it will go away. Right. Start to degrade. Um, okay. Uh, storage of a dental anesthetic, since I kind of just touched on that, like not being stored, you know, in excess heat, where, where do you store your, your anesthetic? 
Um, until I, you know, one, it stays in the box. Remember they're all blister packaged together in a nice box somewhere in a cool, dry place. You don't want to have a lot of heat and moisture in that area. Once they are, once you decide to take it out of the packaging and put it in a drawer, again, make sure it is somewhere that is fairly uh, dry um, and room temperature is fine. You don't, but you just don't want to have it sitting anywhere where steam can get to it. So like the cabinet above the autoclave is not the best place to store your products like that. Right. You know, I always think about like when credit cards first came out, cause I'm that old. Um, they said, don't put it on your microwave. It'll ruin the strip. <laughs> Something about it being magnetized. I don't know. But then, you know, ever since then, I'm like, oh, stuff really matters where you put it. <laughs> oh, Tina, Tina. Okay. So I've got my questions. Do you have any extra words of wisdom to throw down on these dental assistants listening to you all ears right now? Well, you know, I have to say that I, I, I appreciate uh, what you are doing here, Rhonda. And the, the, you know, there's so many dental assistants out there. I think that uh, should become a little more empowered with their understanding of local anesthesia, and you know, be willing to have the conversations in your office and understanding of, you know, which needles and syringes and delivery devices are the best ones. So I'm so excited that you're doing this, and thank you very much. Oh, you're so welcome, Tina. Of course, you know, when you were closing out, I thought of something else. Hopefully you're not running away yet. I do have a question. Okay. So if we are doing a infiltration, say mm -hmm. on tooth number 27, how long should I hold the mental foramen? Oh, yes. So that's a great question. I'm so happy you, you uh, posed that because uh, one, if you're doing an infiltration over tooth number 27, which is, you know, our canine 27 or 22, um, you wouldn't need to put any pressure on the mental foramen because you're depositing the anesthetic pretty far away from that mental foramen. So you're actually just really just doing, uh, an infiltration uh, or super periosteal, depending upon where you learned this stuff. Now, if we're thinking about needing to massage the anesthetic into the mental foramen, the clinician is actually going to be going a little more posterior and depositing should be depositing the solution over the mental frame in which is by between like the first and second premolars. And that's where that's going to happen. So if the clinician that you're working with is trying to get like the premolars to the central incisors numb, and they're infiltrating over tooth number 27, and you're trying to be nice and save the, save them face. What you want to do is push that anesthetic in a more posterior fashion to try to get it into that mental foramen. Yes. And so light pressure, like where do you, what ergonomics wise do it? Cause like when I was asked to do it, I would just, um, gently put two fingers mm -hmm. on the mental foramen and I would just hold light pressure for like a minute. Sometimes I thought that was excessive cause I couldn't feel the bubble anymore. I don't know. Well, once you feel the bubble go away, there's you're good. I will say that. So, and it really depends upon how much anesthetic is delivered and how large that bolus, you know, that bubble is. So you can, I usually use my thumb and just kind of do circular massages in that area to push it in, uh, into that zone. The other way, if you can't fill that bolus anymore, that bubble is just to pull the lip back and see if you can see the anesthetic kind of still having that swelling of that mucobuccal fold region. 
Nice. Got it. Good job. Okay. I knew I'd had one more in there. And there's okay. a good and chance you one, guys And one all... other thing while oh, yeah. we're on that. Okay. Sorry. I, like, I just got my brain going. The other <laughs> thing is that if you're, if your clinician that if the clinician that you're working with, if they're wanting to do that, uh, my suggestion is to use Articane for that style of injection when it's a mandibular infiltration of some sort like that, because Articane really is an amazing anesthetic, but it actually will penetrate the mandibular bone better than any of our other anesthetics. Ooh. Okay. Well, with that being said, my turn, I'm going to volley back upstairs to the <laughs> maxilla. All right. But, all right. Is septicane, lidocaine, what infiltrates into the palate better if you're not going to do a palatal injection? Um, so, um, I'm again, septicane, articane, you know, those are the same one that that's, I, it's my, one of my favorite anesthetics. I love it. It is the amount that you need as far as, as number of cartridges is really low. Um, it's highly effective and it works for practically every single patient type as far as health history goes and, and, um, you know, their cardiovascular health, their, um, liver, kidney function. It is across the board, a really great anesthetic. I like it. And, and here, one more thing, you guys, before Tina goes, just so she can hear this, always inspect your carpules. Yes. If you're not in the room and you give the doctor one lidocaine, you give them one septicane, articane, whatever, and they only use one carpule, you cannot wipe it off and put it back in the drawer, folks. <laughs> Thank I mean, you. You can't do that. I'm sorry. You can't, you put it out. It's, it's, it's burnt. Called it burnt. <laughs> you know, if there was only a video, you'd see me doing the choral dance, you know, where I'm like doing the hallelujah dance right here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's so Absolutely. many I've seen over the years that will literally take like a cabbie wipe, wipe it off and put it back in the drawer. And it breaks my heart. Well, and it breaks the seal. Yep. So don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. It's not worth it. And that's where the systems and, you know, having that good communication with your doctor, like they know what they want. Don't give them a guess. Don't just put out stuff randomly hoping they'll pick it. Like know what they want. And if you don't know what they want, ask in advance. Don't, don't compromise because you're guessing, I guess is what I'm getting down to. <laughs> well, it, you're right. And this, you make a really good point too. in the fact that, you know, just because you're not the person administering the anesthetic doesn't mean that you shouldn't also take the steps to review their health history, to see what they have in their health history that could contraindicate certain anesthetics. So then you can have a more pro deep, profound discussion with your clinician saying, okay, so, you know, We've got Sally Jane here who is, you know, stage three hypertension and we need to do, you know, you're doing a crown on tooth number 19, you know, these are the, which, you know, of these two anesthetics, which ones would you want? Because we have to make sure we're selecting appropriately. So that way you're only having to give the, you know, the clinician, maybe two choices instead of having them go through all of them. Yeah, absolutely. It's a uh, communication and just being diligent because at the end of the day, I, I don't, you know, with dental assistants and doctors, you know, we work side by side and I know my doctor can get flustered. I know that they could be like three hygiene checks at one time. And, and then I get them for anesthetic and their brain is still an op too. Like we have got to be their wingman period and dot. That's right. 
Oh, well, th- t- thank you so much, Tina. Again, it was such a pleasure having you on. I think you're wealth of knowledge and we appreciate you so much. Thank you for doing everything. Uh, just in case they didn't miss, if, if they did miss the first podcast, how do they find more about Tina and all of the amazing services you're helping clinicians with? <laughs> well, thank you. So um, of course, Facebook and Instagram, it's teacher Tina RDH. Uh, you can just search through that. And then my website is teachertinardh.com. And my LinkedIn is Tina Clark, RDH, M-E-D. Love it. All right. Bye guys. Bye. (laughs)